Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the mission of better sense making. I am your host, LB Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast with me, LB. This is a show, if you're new, this is a show where we talk about news, philosophy, mindset, and really things that I see on Twitter that I think need to be made sense of. Um, Got a great show for you guys this week. Uh, This is episode 84, episode 85. I'm actually not really sure. But we got, uh, we got a fun lineup of topics. We're going to cover some big news stories that happened over the last couple of weeks and a couple of things on Twitter that caught my eye that deal, in the more, that deal more in the, uh, in the cultural realm of things. Got, a, got my studio rebuilt. Uh, got a nice new setup. So let's get into it, shall we? Um, there's, really, there's really nowhere else to start. The, the episode for this title is... Um, well, let's see if I can just show you guys here. The episode for this title is The Scotus Pendulum Swings? Question mark. Because, of course, if you weren't paying attention, there were some very uh, pivotal pivotal U.S. Supreme Court cases that came down this week. There is, uh, I guess it's official that the, the Supreme Court has now definitely switched, right? It is definitely more of a conservative Supreme Court than it has been in the past. And before we get into our first story, which is actually going to be a quick, a quick run-up to uh, what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine, because there were some interesting things that happened there recently that I want to bring to your attention, it's worth... I want to, I want to stay on this for just one second, because I can remember throughout my, uh, throughout my whole life and talking and covering these issues, you know, there for, for a while, for a good bit of time, I thought I might be a lawyer. Who knows? Might still happen in the future. Um, but so I've always been interested in the law, always been interested in constitutional law, moreover. And so it always, it's always interesting to me that when you enter one of these classes and you take a test, they always start by saying that the Supreme Court is not supposed to be a political body. Of course, they're nominated by political by by politicians, right? The president is the one who gets to nominate new Supreme Court justices, confirmed by the Senate. But there, but it was always stressed that the Supreme Court always strives for this air of nonpartisanship, which is which when you ask the question in classes like that, and you know, and you say, "But like, how do you explain this, this, and that?" They say, "Well, you know, that's just kind of how we teach things here." And of course, part of what the show is, is teaching you the right way to look at things. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's silly to think of any, to think of the Supreme Court as anything but another political body. Um, In, especially in our current day, they tend to be the people who are the final, who are the final arbiters. Well, at least they have been the final arbiters until they started to make decisions that the people who are at the top the, and left-wing political elements started to disagree with. So we're going to leave that to the side for a sec. I want to start a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about what has recently gone on in Russia and, um, and the Ukraine 
and Ukraine, I should say, and the war that's going on over there. Don't forget, if you if you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to the episode Welcome to World War III. That is really where I think you need to start your thinking when we're in this situation. I do not see, I do, I, I would love to be proven wrong in this, but I don't personally see, um, I don't personally see this changing anytime soon i don't see the war i don't see the this protracted conflict going away i think this is i think this is the war on terror 2.0 or 3.0 however you'd want to spin it right does that make sense that this is basically just what we're going what the u.s government provided it still exists is going to be doing for the next 10 years or so to make well to make the world safe for democracy of course and so let's get into that so last weekend, um, if you you know if you were on online media or if you paid attention to the news, it was a big story. Uh, it was a big story that this group, this mercenary group, this private army, was starting to uh, rise up against the Russian against Russian President Vladimir Putin. And of course, that's exactly what the U.S. has wanted, hasn't it? The U.S. government's job and what we've said and what we what the president has said a few different times in this regard is that they want to destabilize Russia. They want to they want to basically create the systems whereby they the people of Russia don't want Putin at the helm anymore. So let's read. I got this story here. Um, I've got this story here from uh, I think it's from antiwar.com. So this guy who was the leader of the Wagner group, and of course I have the name there, but I'm, I, I, I should have, I, I, I'm bad with, I am frankly very bad with Eastern European names. It's not my favorite thing to uh, try and pronounce. So this guy who was the leader of the Wagner group, he's ended his siege of the Russian city of Rostov Andon and turned around his march on Moscow. It's not clear what happened. I think this was written by Dave DeCamp, by the way. He's a good, good, uh, good anti-war, good guy over there at antiwar.com. It's not clear what happened, nor what was staged and what was real. Each expert and commentator oper- offers a different expert commentary. To the West, the event was an attempted coup that revealed the cracks in the Russian government and military that leaves President Vladimir Putin badly weakened. Others say... It was not really an attempted coup at all, and that a still calm Putin quickly and decisively ended the crisis with little bloodshed. It's impossible to say at this stage, before a lot more information becomes known, what really happened. There are at least four possible theories, the likeliest of many. The first possible explanation is that this event is exactly what it looked like. According to this explanation, an, an increasingly erratic Prigozhin, outraged by an alleged attack on his forces by the Russian military or by corruption in the Russian elite or by a fierce rivalry with the Russian Ministry, Ministry of Defense and top generals said enough and marched on Moscow to stop it. However, his protest failed when two things happened. The first is that General Sergei Ooh, that's a fun one. General Sergei Saruvikin remained loyal to Putin. Um, Saruvikin is a respected general who was even respected by Prigozhin. In demanding the removal of a chief of general staff, Valery Gerasimov, Prigozhin has nominated Saruvikin to replace him. In a video p- appeal, Saruvikin said, I urge you to stop. The enemy is just waiting for the internal political situation to worsen in our country. 
Before it is too late, it is necessary and it is needed to obey the will and the order of the popularly elected president of the Russian Federation. No one in the Russian military, government, or security service defected to Pergozin, and Pergozin is the guy who was in charge of the Wagner Group, which is their which is a which is their private military or one of the big Russian private military firms. I guess we should say. I don't know if this is the only one. The second is that the rebellion may have been a lot smaller than originally portrayed. There may not have been 25,000 troops ready to ra- uh, march on Moscow, and the seized area of Rostov-on-Don and his troops may have been deceived. There are reports that may or may not be reliable that Pergozin informed his forces that they were being routed through Rostov on the way to defend Bel- Belgorod, the city that had come under Ukrainian attack. Most of his troops may not have known that they were turning or Putin and the Russian military occupying Rostov. When they realized what they were being used to do, they rebelled against the rebellion. The Russian Ministry of Defense issued a statement claiming that a large part of the Wagner forces laid down their arms and left. According to several reports, no Wagner commanders or officers joined the rebellion. As the rebellion unfolded, Pergozin may have been revealed as a wizard of Oz. A second theory is that he wasn't getting rid of Putin, but Putin was getting rid of him. So this is an interesting theory that I've come across a couple of times. The respected former Indian diplomat M.K. Badrakumar has suggested the possibility that Russian intelligence gave him the long rope to hang himself. According to this theory, Putin took advantage of Prigozhin's betrayal to put an end to his betrayal. Putin may have allowed the situation to unfold to set up the negotiations that would separate a volatile Prigozhin from a valuable Wag- from his valuable Wagner group, while putting an end to Wagner as an independent mercenary force and allowing its incorporation into the Ministry of Defense. There are even unconfirmed reports that the Kremlin allowed the march on Moscow, according to one unconfirmed video, for at least a small part of the way the Wagner, the Wagner convoy was escorted by Russian police. Of course, it cannot be yet known how much of this is true. And anything that we talk about, this is one of the reasons why I don't do a lot of in-depth analysis um, on, on, the, on this war, on this protracted conflict, is because... Frankly, we can't trust most of the information that comes out of these situations. And that's why I liked this piece, and that's why I wanted to read it to you, is because it lays out multiple theories that could be going on. Because the reality is, we don't know, right? If you were if you were listening to the if you were listening to the major news outlets, they were they were saying that this was the end of Putin, right? That this was going to be the end of Putin, and that you know we were all gonna. I don't know, not bring the troops home necessarily, but we were all going to enjoy the fact that Vladimir Putin's reign had finally come to an end. So this guy, Pergozin, had an intense and bitter rivalry with the defense ministry, uh, with the defense minister and the chief of the general staff. He has been publicly attacking them in his speeches for weeks. Uh, Putin is very close to these guys. Obviously, they're part of his cabinet, part of his inner circle, I would imagine. But he may have also become dissatisfied with these people. At a recent meeting with the war correspondents, the military bloggers for a que- um, oh the military bloggers for a question and answer session at the Kremlin, Putin referred to parquet generals and carpet knights who, in times of actual war, are ineffective. To put it mildly, it has been pointed out that Putin stood back for a long time, not getting personally involved in Prigozhin's very public dispute dispute with um, Shigu, Shoigu and Gera, uh, Gerasimov, potentially allowing the rift to come to a head before stepping in and quickly and efficiently ending it. 
permitting a desired outcome to unfold through the agency of those who would not be atypical of Putin nor look out of place on his long resume. Putin may have permitted the Pergozin insurrection to put pressure on Shoigu and Gerasimov without having to initiate it directly or directly involve himself. So maybe he didn't like his chief of staff and the head of his and the head of his uh, defense ministry. It's interesting to think about because certainly here in the West, certainly here in the United States, the average person views Putin as an autocrat who has a very tight grip on power. But of course, we here at the Mission of Better Sense Making understand that things are never so easy, not even in a regime like Russia. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has said there will be no personnel changes, but there are unconfirmed rumors that the two men targeted by Prigozhin could become vulnerable. It would be consistent with Putin's leadership style, which uh, which is risk averse. So this is so these are a few theories of what happened. Another thing that I saw reported different areas that I wanted to bring to your attention as well is that this actually had a little more to do with incorporating reincorporating, we might say the um the 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 wagner group within the russian army itself as the donbass region that is the that is the crux of all of this conversation all of this war is based around this donbass was or i should say the the starting point for this conflict had to do with the donbass region which is the far east of ukraine which is predominantly ethnically russian and so under this theory as well, so in order to gain more control over the Wagner Group to incorporate their troops within, th- to within the Russian army, they basically said, well, actually, you're on Russian soil now, because if you, for- if you forgot, at the beginning of this conflict, the Donbass region, quote unquote, voted for independence and the, Russian re- and the Russian Federation incorporated them into their land. So technically speaking, depending on who you ask, the Wagner Group was operating on Russian soil. And there's, I guess, some sort of rule against that of private military forces operating on Russian soil, but the regular army can. These are the sorts of power plays that are always involved in in military conflicts. And again, like I said, what I want to stress to people listening is that we can't really trust the day-to-day events that come out of these things. We can look for big, big things like this do happen. And it was what, what what will be interesting to see is if, um, oh, what's this guy's name? Uh, if uh, Pergozin, if he, you know, I guess right now he might be going to a country like Belarus for some sort of exile period and anybody who's loyal to him. But maybe it'd be interesting to see if he ends up suddenly in, in Ukraine or in another Western European nation. Now, that's on the Russian side. There was a very interesting piece that if you missed on the um, on the Ukrainian side that I think we should all take a look at together, which is the president, the president of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, told the BBC last week that there will be no Ukrainian presidential election in 2024 if martial law is still in effect. Zelensky's five-year term is due to end in 2024, but his comments suggest that it will be extended indefinitely if the war isn't over by then. He made similar comments about Ukraine's parliamentary elections, which are due to be held in October of this year, in an interview with the Washington Post last month. When asked if parliamentary elections will be held this fall, Zelensky said, if we have martial law, we cannot have elections. The Constitution constitution prohibits any elections during martial law. If there is no martial law, then there will be. 
Russian uh, Ruslan Stefanchuk, the Speaker of the Ukrainian Parliament, also said this month that elections can't happen in Ukraine under martial law, which Zelensky declared when Russia invaded. Uh, Ukrainian legislation stipulates it is impossible to hold any elections during martial law. And this makes sense, because why would you want to vote people out that might, you know, want to end that and vote people in that might want to end a conflict sooner? Stefanchuk added added that if the elections happen, it could lead to the rupture of the state, which our enemy is waiting for. That is why I think the most correct and wise decision is to hold elections immediately after the end of martial law. After declaring martial law, Zelensky took steps to consolidate power, including, and this is, this is the funny part about this entire situation. This is perhaps the most comical thing to any of us who are paying close attention to this conflict. And as a listener of this show, that includes you. If you're paying close attention to this conflict, you understand that one of the first things Zelensky did in Ukraine was to ban political opposition, was to ban the practice of the Russian Orthodox faith, was to try, was to attempt, and I think in some, in some senses succeeded in capturing uh, uh, churches and taking them over and making them more Ukrainian to ban the speaking of the Russian language, which heretofore was a very common language spoken in Ukraine, given the history between the two lands and given the most recent history uh, under, the, under, the, under Soviet control. So that's why I designed this little graphic. I don't know if you can see it here, but you know, if you look at the screen, it's uh, it's a that's that's a picture of the guy in the Wagner Group. You got Putin, and then you got uh, Vladimir Vladimir Zelensky saying, "Maybe I can be president for life too," because of course, the allure of power is always strong. And I don't know that again. This is I wanted to bring those stories to your attention because you probably saw one, you probably didn't see the other if you were just paying attention to normal sources, and that's why you come to a show like this. Moving on. We're going to jump right into some Supreme Court analysis here. If I could just, there we go. Oh, no, that's not what we're doing. We're going to, we're going to get to the Supreme Court. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about this thing that happened recently on Twitter where Elon Musk came out and he tweeted, to address extreme labels of levels of data scrapping and system manipulation, we've applied the following temporary limits. Verified accounts are limited to reading 6,000 posts per day, under, unverified 600 posts, and new unverified to 300. Now, one of the more interesting things about this was the way people reacted. Now, of course, Elon Musk, as a titan of industry, as one of the richest men in the world, and as the owner of Twitter, has uh, what can be very fairly called a bullseye on his back. And what was very interesting to me about this story was how I reacted versus how a lot of people that I saw on Twitter react. Now, obviously, more left-wing elements are going to go straight for the throat of Eli. This is going to be another example why Twitter is going to fail, why there's no solution to this problem, um, why what else, what else, what else, uh, why, you know, why, why Elon's a bad guy, why he shouldn't have fired all the people, da-da-da-da-da. Well, there was something in this tweet that, you know, we can see up on the screen here. There was something in this tweet and that was the word data scraping, which I don't know a ton about, but I know enough to know that basically what data scraping is, is a system, is, is a system by which an automated computer 
runs a page, takes the information from the page, and then stores that information elsewhere. A lot of people were saying, this is ridiculous, Elon, how could you do something like this? They were asking questions like, or they were saying that they don't want to use the service anymore. Why should they pay? Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, I'm, I'm, I have the Twitter blue, right? So technically speaking, my account is verified on Twitter at the LB Muniz if you want to follow me there. So my account is verified. I haven't come anywhere close to reading 6,000 posts a day. And I frankly feel really good about that because sometimes I, like many people, think I spend too much time on social media. But I found, and that's what, we're she- that's what I'm showing here. So I found this guy, uh, what is his name? The Sicilian Irish robot, Mystery Robozo on Twitter is his handle. I found, uh, I found a thread that he put out in regards to this that he says, uh, some people... Some people asked me to share what I just shared in the space about rate limits. I don't work for Twitter, but I do architect IT cloud solutions as my day job. And according to him, at least, and this is something that to me seemed very obvious, is that this wasn't, this wasn't a viable long-term solution for the platform of Twitter. No, this is precisely the kind of temporary measure that they want to try and impose to, um, to make sure that things, you know, that the, pro- that the platform works better. So data scraping according to the Sicilian Irish robot, is a big deal. This is where automated systems load the website or app and pull your tweets and data. Hang on, I'm going to adjust the camera here for one second. There we go. Now I can actually read. It's a huge security issue. All right. It's a huge security issue. Um, automated systems are pulling every tweet, word, user account information to store in unknown data in an unknown database somewhere. So according to him, this could be state actors like China, the U.S. government, Australia, or other bad political actors like PACs, political action committees, that are trying to gain access to everyone's information to analyze and use for nefarious things, right? So we might imagine that as a super PAC, I'm going to find out everybody on the staff of a political campaign and I'm going to run one of these scraping things to where if they tweet anything that is marginally inappropriate with a typo or maybe they just said something in a way that they didn't mean to say it, that what they're going to do is they're going to pull that information and even if the tweet is deleted, they can use it. So that's an example of how in the political process this could be the case. Manipulating what is said on the site can be done at scale, according to him, with data scraping. It could also be used to figure out the identity of Anons or to punish people in their country for what they tweet. Looking at you, Australia and Canada and the United Kingdom. The temporary measures of limiting tweets is to protect users just as much as it is to protect the entire Twitter network from going down. They are currently scrambling to get ahead of this and tune their network security to block it from happening again. It is also important to note that Twitter has 500,000 plus servers. That is not free. In cloud data centers, the companies that use them have to pay for what is called ingress and egress of data going in and out of the servers. A data scraping event that is large enough for them to start limiting means that it was a massive event that could be considered an attack on the site. And this makes this makes a lot of sense, actually, if you think about it. Um, it makes a lot of sense that it would be something in excess for what is for what normally occurs on the Twitter website that would lead them to having to do something like this. Now, again, well, we hopefully we know the specifics, but it was very it was again what's very weird, and this is I know that some of this is just pile on culture, right? Some of this is just the way that we act on social media, where we just spout off from the hip. 
we shoot from the hip without really thinking about what we were saying. But I was surprised that people thought that this would be something permanent. It doesn't make good business sense for this to be something permanent. And for whatever else you might say about him, Elon Musk does seem to have a penchant for good business sense. Let's keep reading this tweet thread that I thought was very interesting. Um, and so, oh, and the ingress, ingress and egress. So they have to pay every time data is accessed. So if one of these bots is ac accessing millions of tweets a day, let's say, because, you know, so, okay, so we can understand from this that six, that at least 300 tweets a day is okay and that can keep them financially stable. Okay, so what if, what if one of these data scraping programs was accessing a billion tweets a day? Seems, seems plausible to me. Let's see. So uh, let's see. Bah, 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 bah. A data scraping event that is large enough for them to start limiting means it was a massive event that could be a considered an attack on the site. It would also put a massive load on their servers and cost them so much money. It could threaten the site's financial ability to keep running. It could be on purpose to put Twitter out of business from cost alone. And wouldn't you think that somebody out there is trying to do that? Many people are misunderstanding why Elon Musk wants people to pay for Twitter or for the Twitter API. The reason he wants people to pay is because if China or porn companies want to create massive bot farms of fake accounts, it is currently free. This is what I thought was particularly interesting. And again, this guy is just a subject matter expert. This is what makes Twitter such a fun website to be on. These bad actors are highly skilled and operate like a business. They have professional staff that continuously change their tactics and Twitter engineers to have to fight 24-7 to stay ahead of them. If they have to pay for every account or pay to use the API, it would cost them a lot of money. This limits the amount of people who could create bots put automated porn on here and the hacking, scraping DDoS attacks on the site. It protects you, the user. It also guarantees Twitter will continue to exist without bloating it with a ton of ads. This is all part of the plan to create a free speech place where we can enjoy without being controlled by outside actors or advertising companies. $8 might be a lot for some people, but it is, but it, it is for many, but it is for many reasons a good idea. None of the reasons here are to hurt or punish people. So I thought this was an interesting story because, you know, one thing I can, you know, one thing when, when people were using Facebook more regularly, um, you know, it was like the joke kind of was, and with Instagram is like when Instagram was down and Facebook was down, you would go check Twitter to see what was going on because Twitter notoriously doesn't go down. And so again, 6,000 tweets a day, I haven't come any, I don't think I've come anywhere close to that. I don't know if there's a counter I can access or something like that. I don't see this as being a long-term solution. If it is, I'll let you guys know and, eat, and, and, and I'll eat crow on this. But it is worth remembering that if you see something that you don't understand, and this is what we try to do in the mission of better sense making, is we try to bring sense to an otherwise... Um, we, we try to bring sense to something that doesn't make sense, right? That it doesn't quite cohere. We don't quite have a good narrative story to put behind the facts that we see in front of us. So if your narrative was that Elon Musk is stupid and that this was going to be something forever. Well, you should, you're really acting like all those crybabies who got upset at the fact that they lost their, they lost their verified status on Twitter and stormed off the platform. Also interesting to note, and I didn't pull, I didn't, I don't have a slide for this, but I did see this recently is that meta, right? So Facebook and Instagram, Mark Zuckerberg is actually planning the release of a threads app which is a direct competitor to Twitter. Very interesting that we've gone this long without Facebook, without Facebook or with Facebook not 
creating a direct competitor for Twitter. And and what's more interesting as well is to point out the fact that this isn't, uh, you know, at least in the case of Instagram, that was a that was something that they purchased, right? It was a company that they purchased that was already up and running. This is apparently, I could be wrong, they probably acquired some sort of small company at some at some point along the way. But it's very interesting to me that they're launching the app now here in a here in advance of the uh, of the U.S. election. What that likely means is because remember, free speech is a right wing issue in the United States of America. Now, free speech is not something that the political left concerns itself with. If you're a progressive, if you're a progressive, you have no concern for free speech. You've never had a concern for free speech. If you're a socialist or a communist, you only use it. You only use it to get your way. And then you plan to pull the rug out from the people behind you. And of course, we'll get into this a little bit at the end of the at the end of this episode where we talk about uh, the recent spat between our between Robert Kennedy Robert F Kennedy Jr and that uh, vaccine scientist Peter something or the other uh, i have it i have it in the notes but we're going to see it we're going to see it there is well you know we can't really have free speech anymore because debate doesn't really exist so it'll be very interesting to see what meta does i mean i'll probably get on the platform I don't know how often I'm going to post to it, but you know, I probably will try to post good tweets there. But it'll be interesting to see and watch how the migra- if a migration happens among prominent left-wing um, politicians and media and media entities, or if Twitter will still remain the hub for these kinds of instructions, these kinds of conversations. So the next story that we're going to talk about, and we're going to get into this with uh, with a lovely tweet from the great Mark Ruffalo. So he says, okay, and I don't know what it is about Mark Ruffalo that he always has the worst kind of liberal Hollywood takes, but he does. I think if I were if I were to just opine briefly, which is why you're listening to the show, is part of this reason is because um, is one of, is because he probably thinks himself smart, and so he and as an actor, he's very good at parroting what he's supposed to say. So we have this tweet here from him. Okay. And this, this, I think, the other reason why I chose this, I think it generally, we got a couple political cartoons I'm going to show you as well. But this, generally speaking, this, generally speaking, shows the, um, shows where I think a lot of normal people are at as it relates to the Supreme Court. Okay, so we all understand the Supreme Court has become a right-wing ideological, pol- ideological political institution under Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. They are for sale and illegitimate. Now, we have to beat them in the executive branch and the legislature. And I'm sure he said more interesting things, but I don't really care to go through them. So what, what were some of these decisions that we were talking about? Is um, what, what were some of the decisions that we were talking about in regards to this? Well, as before we get into the before we get into the details of it, I did want to share this video with you guys because it's important to understand that yeah, Mark Ruffalo, he's a Hollywood celebrity, right? He's always going to kind of spout off. But what do the people at the highest levels of political power say? Well, let's listen to President Biden. This is not a normal court. So let's go back. I want to watch that video again. Whoops. Congressional Black Caucus said the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? 
All right, I want to show you guys this. It was kind of funny to me to watch this part here. Watch Biden's face. And if you're not, if you're listening, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it too. But I wanted to watch his face. So we have this reporter who is, um, we have this reporter who is trying, who's asking a question. Should this be considered a rogue court? Now that is very inflammatory rhetoric. Um, sorry, getting my, I'm still trying to get this thing here. So it's it, it they're asking is is this a rogue court and watch biden's face here Oop, there we go i'll get better at this is this a rogue court he thinks about it and then there's like there's like this little smile that he gets and he says it's not a normal court and i just love that because to me at least to me at least this is this is biden thinking that he is oh so clever once again and that he is uh figuring out you know that he's figured out something to say he's like well i'm not going to say it's a rogue court but it's not normal ladies and gentlemen if it's not clear this is going to be one of the this is going to be one of the talking points for the 2024 election it has been happening the groundwork has been laid over the last few years and of course it's not the first time in U.S. history that we haven't tried that 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 uh, that an opposition party or that one political party hasn't tried to pack the courts what does that mean? Well, there actually is no set amount of justices within the Supreme Court, at least in terms of, of what the Constitution prescribes. So if they wanted to, they could just add five or ten more justices to the court to make sure that the court conservative uh, to make sure that the conservatives are completely outweighed. Again, remember, we were supposed to but we're supposed to believe that the that the Supreme Court isn't a political institution. Now, I called this episode the SCOTUS pendulum swings because my whole life, one of the things that people have talked about in regards to American democracy is this pendulum effect. And I guess democracy in total, you might say, is this idea of a pendulum. And of course, a pendulum is something that swings back and forth. So the idea is that while things may swing to the left, they will inevitably and invariably swing back to the right. And it appears that we're living through them, perhaps maybe just one of those times, right? The Supreme Court, came out with um the supreme court came out with uh it's a, you know this is a piece from politico that i pulled a couple of things from and one of the uh this is so this is these are the three cases this is reading from the political piece when the smoke cleared the decades-long use of race to achieve diversity in college admissions was effectively dead, as was Biden's marquee policy for forgiving student debt for tens of millions of Americans and the high court's two-decade-plus string of decisions expanding the rights of LGBTQ community was stopped in its tracks and beaten back by a ruling upholding the right of business owners to refuse service to same-sex couples on free speech grounds. So, Affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, and LGBTQ rights. That is the core of the modern progressive movement, these three things. Now, of course, what were the cases? Well, we'll go through them in brief here, and then I want to take a look at some of the political cartoons, again, that you kind of just saw on the screen if you're watching, is affirmative action. So, so Harvard was sued um, by, I believe, a, uh, by, I believe, a contingent of Asian students because, in general— because of diversity practices, because of what is called affirmative action, whereby you let people into a top-tier university or really any university 
even if they have lower test scores than what you would normally do, because you're trying to re- you're trying to rebalance the uh, the racial scales and you're trying to have some sort of racial makeup that, depending on who you ask, either is supposed to represent the entire country or you know really diversity at this point just means letting people in who are going to follow this regime. So Harvard was sued, and of course, and this is a case. This is a case I don't have. I can't remember the one beforehand, but it's important to note this isn't the first time the Supreme Court has picked up this issue. And of course, the court said back then that while they would leave it in for now that this was something that would be up for judicial review in the future, which is to say there was perhaps always a sunset. Now, this is one of the interesting things for me as far as when we analyze the political realm of the United States is precisely this. Why is it so bad to think, this is the question, why is it so bad to think that affirmative action might be okay within certain times and places, but not okay within others? Why can't we put a sunset clause on these sorts of things and then return to some sort in order to correct the behavior of all the bad racist people at there? Sure, sure, sure. But then we can but then we can put the sunset on after that behavior has been corrected. No, 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 no. See, that doesn't actually work because once once the left gets a hold of some kind of power, the last thing they want to do is give it up. So that's and so that's where the affirmative action thing comes into play. The all of these things are going to be 2024 talking points for the Democrats, for the Biden regime. Then, of course, it's Biden's student loan forgiveness. I've written a lot about student loan forgiveness, how ridiculous it is on the face. And listen, I'm somebody with a mountain of student debt. I've done what I can to make sure that I can pay it and I can still live a nice lifestyle. So to the people who haven't, you're either living far beyond your means or you never should have gotten there in the first place. And that's a sad thing to think about. But the easiest thing to do would be to expand bankruptcy courts so that way the banks banks lose and 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 the people win. But that's not what we're talking about. And invariably, any of these student loan forgiveness programs are go and to the effect that they, to the extent that they actually go after the banks that are lending these things and the universities that are that are accepting these that, that are accepting these loans. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just wiping the slate clean, probably printing trillions of dollars and just giving it to the banks and the universities so that they can have a better, so so they can still continue to do what they do. And what do they do? But they, you know, especially places like Harvard, they train people in the modern orthodoxy. That has always been the history of university system. Universities come to us from the church, right? The people, the, the Harvard was a divinity school. It was a place that you would go when you were trying to be, when you were trying to study theology. And it is my contention that the universities still do that to this day. And of course, the last case was about, it was had something to do, you know, there was the whole bake the cake thing a few years ago. This was build the website. So this was like some, and this is the, again, the part I don't understand is why. Why are you interested in giving your money to somebody who doesn't like you? That's the one thing that I've never quite understood about the LGBTQ uh, plus whatever uh, alphabet soup political movement is they're willing to pay somebody a service knowing that they're going to reject that service because they don't want to compete. They don't want to they don't want to participate in it just so that they can sue them. Why? Because it's about power, of course. Now, the other thing that I found very interesting, and I've got a couple of these pulled up here on the screen was the kinds of political cartoons, and there was two in particular that have become very popular. One is called one has the title The State of the Union, and what you see are one, two, three, four justices in black robes over a desiccated and destroyed Supreme Court building, uh, lifting the battle flag of the Confederacy with the words saying, Now for the Environmental Protection Agency. 
And of course, then there's another one that's going popular that has a picture of the current court with any of the conservative just with all of the conservative justices, I should say, wearing KKK robes, because, of course, the left can't meme and the left doesn't really uh, the left can only think of things in terms of 1960s America. I also thoroughly enjoyed this one that I'm going to show you here. This one is, uh, you won't let us discriminate on race. You're making us pay back our student loans. And it's uh, a a visage of Clarence Thomas saying yes. And it's just as a last little part before we move on to the next story. I will say, I am thoroughly enjoying the meme culture. I am thoroughly enjoying the meme culture around Justice Clarence Thomas. It is well-deserved. It is well-overdue. And the man deserves all the laud and all the... uh, all all the lauding and all the praise that he can get Um, because he has been a stalwart on the bench taking uh, with few exceptions. He has some opinions that I don't, that I don't necessarily agree with over time, but he has consistently and he has consistently and, and and forever been one of the best conservative justices uh, on the bench. And of course, if you didn't know he's black, Oh, Oh my God. And it was interesting because joy Reed has actually come out saying that he was an affirmative action hire. I've I've read a lot of Clarence Thomas's uh, decisions. Yeah, he's not an affirmative action hire. He's he's a brilliant legal mind, and precisely and and a, and a great evident a great evidentiary reason for why that's not what people are referring to as a, as an affirmative action hire. Nobody really has an issue with high highly competent people getting into positions of authority. It's when the low competency people get into those same positions. So that's what we got for the Supreme Court. Quick little roundup. I mean, that's really all you need to know. It's an exciting time, but don't forget, while it may seem like the pendulum is swinging, it's going to swing right back because, uh, well, because we live, because the media environment and the government and the government apparatuses are, have a predominantly left-wing bent. They are entirely, they are entirely consumed by the cult of diversity, equity, and inclusion what we can also refer to as the woke. So what's our next story? Next story here is, um, oh, the next story. Okay. So the next story, and then we're going to end on some, we're going to end on some fun dating culture stuff. So this next story that I want to talk about is, uh, it was Peter Hotez, by the way, he was the, um, he was the, uh, vaccine scientist, he was the vaccine scientist that got into the spat. Now, if you don't know how this happened, it's because our uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for the presidency, RFK Jr., and he is um, running as a Democrat. And a lot of people are very excited about his campaign. A lot of people. And I think the reason why a lot of people are excited about his campaign are for a few reasons. And But the, under, the underlying reason is here we have a Democrat who is willing to play ball with Republicans. And for the conservative mind, and even for some libertarian elements, that is exactly where they want to be. They play the heel. Remember, in the cult of American democracy, the Republicans' job is to play the heel. They're supposed to be the bad guys, and the, and, and the Democrats get to be the good guys. That is what everybody thinks about politics, at least, at least, in, terms of, at least in terms of the default state that we talk about here about people who don't follow things closely that will not be paying attention to the presidential cycle until, well, basically until maybe around the time of the Democratic and Republican conventions, but really only until a few months before the election. These are studied phenomenons in politics, by the way. Nothing here that I'm saying is particularly 
uh, is, is particularly uh, contentious or controversial. So RFK went on Joe Rogan and he talked and he, and he laid out his claims about vaccinations and about, um, you know, the problems therein that might exist. And specifically, more specifically, the problem with the, the medicine that they gave us or they attempted to give us and the force that was required around the COVID, uh, around COVID times and for the COVID vaccines and all the idiosyncrasies in there. Now, one thing to remember about RFK, this is how you make sense of him and how you need to make sense of him is while he does come from what can be called American royalty, his uncle was John F. Kennedy, the president, his father was R, was Robert F. Kennedy, the attorney general, both were assassinated under interesting and dubious circumstances. Both had, both opposed the uh, encroaching and enlarging intelligence apparatus, the military-industrial complex, and RFK is 100% within that tradition. For me personally, I I like a lot of what he has to say. I think he has good, interesting takes. Now, just on the Supreme Court stuff here, he actually, you know, he came out and said that the affirmative action ruling was a problem because we still have to fix inequity. So he still has the lib in him, as it were. He still is very much a liberal. And that's, I think, what people find most enticing about his, um, about his presidency is they see him, despite his quote-unquote edginess, people who are outside of the media, who, people who are outside of the, press corp, the corporate press's uh, clutches, if you will, find him to be a very tantalizing candidate because he is so maligned as being a crackpot, as we're going to get into here as we read this piece uh, from the Washington Post, He's so maligned as a crackpot, but when you listen to him, what he is is a very good litigator. He's a good lawyer, and that's one of the reasons why they're so scared of him. So, like, for example, let's just look. Here is, here's how the piece, here's how this Washington Post piece. So, um, so, so run, running up the rest of the story. So he goes on Joe Rogan. This guy, uh, what's this guy's name? Peter Hotez. Uh, Peter Hotez, MD, PhD, who was... Uh, you know, he wears a bow tie, he wears a lab coat, he goes on all the major news outlets to talk about the vaccines and how great they are and how it's basically the savior of humanity, which is an interesting item. And so he retweeted this because this, and this basically sums up that what's fascinating about this article and other articles like it is precisely how we're again seeing that free speech has become a right-wing issue. That free speech has been completely abandoned by the left and the consequences for a, for, a, for a divided polity, for one side to basically turn this off and to reject this position, not great. Not great. It's going to continually lead to escalation and polarization and continued political and, and, and continued um, political uh, how I, instability, precisely because there's only one right opinion, and that's the progressive opinion. That is that is what many people believe. So this is and this is how the this is how the Washington Post chooses to cover it. Jeff Bezos's Washington Post, like many a crank before him, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. decided the best way to promote his ideals, mostly opposition to vaccines, with a smattering of various conspiracy theories thrown in, which is ironic, which which has no bearing on the facts of what of his interview would be to run for president. Well, that's not why he's running for president. He's running for president. And again, we're, we're going to kind of just walk through this. Where he's running for president, as he said, because he sees a divided country. He thinks he can unite it. And he saw the, over, the tyrannical overreach of the COVID regime, which we all witnessed and is the reason why so many of us now are in this fight. 
He's doing that because of he's doing it because of that. So he's doing that. That's what the Washington Post wants you to believe, and because of the family name he bears, he is able to get attention. That is no doubt the envy of crackpots everywhere. So there's not even a veneer of civility in these sorts of things. That's where we are in the political rhetoric. Even ten years ago, it was consi- it was not considered to you were you wouldn't be this disrespectful to a Kennedy. At the moment, that means the country's most widely heard podcaster, Joe Rogan, and the world's most rich and the world's richest man, Elon Musk, are not only rallying to Kennedy's side, but also challenging renowned virologist and vaccine deba- developer to debate Kennedy on Rogan's program. So basically, there was a Twitter spat, and Joe Rogan said, Hey, Peter, you've been on my show before. You've talked about it. Come back. Talk to RFK. Challenge his ideas. Challenge him and and let's see if we can come to a greater understanding. Also note, you'll notice here that they call him the most widely heard podcaster. Well, Joe Rogan is one of the largest media apparatuses in the country, but this is, but the Washington post pretends like people like him don't exist. The virologer, the virologist, Peter Hotez has not taken the bait for which he is being assaulted on right-wing media, but the whole episode illustrates something depressing something depressing democratic debate and deliberation were supposed to be how we test ideas reveal the truth and come to collective decision yet today debate is far more likely to make us dumber than to help us plot a course for the future so millions of people millions of americans still look at the washington post as a source for unbiased information and good opinion Right. That's that's what we can. That's something that we need to understand. Millions of Americans still read The Washington Post and they still think that this is where they need to go for their information. And so what a piece like this is doing, especially for such an important and large story as this is telling you what to think. They're not making sense of the situation. They're doing the job of a corporate of a corporate writer and telling you what to believe. So debate is far more. So so debate You might have read, you might have been taught when you were growing up that debate was something that you're supposed to engage in because that's how democracy works. Democracy on its own terms, in fact, requires debate because it involves involves representative government whereby maybe not everybody is aligned because that's the whole idea. No taxation without representation. I'm actually, you know, I'm recording this and releasing this on the 4th of July. That's what we were told growing up. That is the story we were led to believe. Well, that story doesn't work anymore because there are outlets like Joe Rogan where two people will just have a long conversation. And what's fascinating about a conversation like on Joe Rogan's show is you don't have to agree with everything that's said. I'll be honest. I rarely, I don't normally listen to Joe Rogan. I really only listen to him when he has big people on. I don't agree with Joe Rogan on a lot of things. There are differences in the way we approach the world. That doesn't make his show any less interesting. And that's why people are drawn to it. They're not drawn to it because he's a legacy media outlet that is the, um, in the case of the Washington Post, is the newspaper du jour of the intellectual and the elite class. No, no, no. People watch it because they find it entertaining. Excuse me. Because they find it entertaining. So Hotez, so this is, the, this is the virologist, who is dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, 
became a visible media expert at the start of the COVID pandemic. He has been extremely critical of Kennedy, one of the most prominent and extravagant anti-vaxxers in American life. When Hotez recently criticized Kennedy again, Rogan offered to give $100,000 to the charity of Hotez's choice if he would debate Kennedy on Rogan's show. When Hotez declined, Musk, Musk chimed in to say the virologist is afraid of public debate because he knows he's wrong. Hotez's logic is simple and absolutely correct. Oh, okay, great. So in this piece, guess what we're going to find out, guys? We're going to find out precisely why Hotez is right and RFK is wrong in regards to vaccinations. When experts debate a crank, nothing is accomplished except elevating the crank to a status he doesn't deserve. Well, that's weird. That doesn't really seem to have to deal with anybody's opinion. Um, few, if any, of the per any will be persuaded of the truth, and the result will be a less informed public. Oh, oh, so we're not actually learning what Hotez believes or what RFK believes. They already did enough priming in the first paragraph, right? Now, we just need to know that this guy, you know, this guy right here, this, uh, how do I do this? This guy over here that you see on the screen, he's wrong, and the other guy's right. Because, you know, that's what you're supposed to believe. Conspiratorial beliefs, such as those Kennedy advocates, nor, again, no actual reference to the positions, it can, might be amongst the hardest to dislodge by reasoned argument. To be a conspiracy theorist is to commit yourself to a project of ignoring reason and facts in favor of an endless search for obscure connections, hidden agendas, and secret cabals. No one erects stouter walls against the possibility of persuaded than the conspiracy theorist. Now, talked multiple times on the show. I don't deal in conspiracy theories. I deal in facts. This is the trick that the left pulls on in the political situation is saying only the facts that they approved are what can be considered fact. It's a lie, but that's what politics is for. It's for lies that help you gain power. But even continuing in the piece, even if Kennedy were a more reasonable person, he's pretty reasonable from what I've seen. Um, even if he's a more reasonable person, the idea that two people who disagree about an important issue could engage on Rogan's podcast and the result would be a better informed public, more ready to make a collective decision, is absurd. Yet, while scientific questions aren't resolved by performative debates, that is how we have long thought we should settle political questions. The idea is embedded in theories of democracy that go all the way back to ancient Greece. Debate is how democracies decide. We put our ideas in front of the polity, probe and examine them, and attack them and defend them, and the better ones prevail. That process is supposed to reveal the truth and guide us towards good decisions. And if idea is false, the debate will reveal it. If an idea is true, the debate will be, the, the people will be persuaded of its wisdom. When it's over, we might not have a perfect consensus, but we know how to proceed. But, the, but this author asks, is that anything how we, we live in America today? course the answer to that question is no not really very interesting trick that he does here coming up he goes on to say legislators have something they call debates but they mostly talk past each other candidates have debates that are all about coming up with zingers and avoiding gaffes the better to win the post-debate contest of memes cable news is filled with debates every day and social media produces more debates than anyone could count Yet precious little of it contains even the possibility that anyone who would be persuaded of anything or 
Precious little of it contains even the possibility that anyone would be persuaded of anything since it takes place in partisan contexts where having one's mind changed by a superior argument would mean crossing over to the enemy's side, threatening deeply meaningful connections of identity. That might not be true of every debate we have. There are complex policy questions in which the options aren't black and white, and some arguments are so ridiculous they don't survive scrutiny. And it isn't that we're inherently incapable of having our minds changed. So he goes on and he goes on and he keeps talking about this. Let's see. I got a little, I got a little piece here that they, a little snippet, little screenshot of them closing the, closing the Pete, closing the part. And this was the thing that I wanted to touch on. But in what we, in what we see in the media every day, debate is merely a performance. The search for truth set aside in favor of looking smart and defeating one's opponent. This has been a problem since ancient Greece as well. The word sophistry, meaning plausible-sounding but fallacious argument, that's not what sophistry means, comes from the sophists who made a profession of teaching people how to argue long before the invention of instructional YouTube videos. So this is, this is the play. This is the turn. This is them, again, continually turning against the basic American principle foundations of free speech. Is saying th- is saying things like this. What we see, but don't you don't you know what we see in the media isn't actually debate? Yeah, that's why people like Joe Rogan. I'll tell a personal story here that I thought would be useful. He had one a few years ago on the subject of marijuana legalization, and I am somebody who's always favored marijuana legalization. I'm somebody who enjoys cannabis products on occasion, and. You know, I was I was definitely one of those people who was in the camp that said, well, you know, it's it's clearly a very safe drug. It's you know, it's not nearly as dangerous as alcohol. But he had on a guy from The New York Times. I can't remember his name. He actually became something of a covid skeptic himself. But he had a guy, but I had a guy who basically was talking about some of the dangers of it. And of course, it should be assumed that there are, in fact, dangers when it comes to any any kind of drug. And of course, it can't be the case that something is completely okay because even water will drown you. Even something that we need to survive like water can drown you if you, ha- if you try to drink enough of it at once. But this is what they're doing. This is the cover that they're running for this right? by saying there can't be any kind of debate. Which, and what's interesting about it is, well, perhaps there can't. And the reason why is for something that we talked about on the show a number of times. It is the inversion morality of the left that we have currently. The moral center of this country has been bifurcated. There are those of us who believe in general principles of freedom and community and family and religion and God. And then there are people who want to invert that morality and create their own. And we call those the left, the woke, the cults of diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is the time. These are the times that we live in. These are the times that try men's souls. At the end of this, he said, this is how he closes his piece. And again, he's trying to, he's trying to be profound here. Almost four centuries ago, English poet John Milton made a plea for freedom of speech, saying we should not doubt the power of truth. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. The unfortunate answer in our world is that truth is put to the worse every day and the kinds of debates we've gotten used to only make it easier for falsehood to survive. That's strange. That doesn't sound like the truth to me. That sounds like the truth of a modern, of a postmodern subjectivist, which is of course probably what this guy operates from. The last piece I wanted to cover today, it, there's this, okay, so her name is Pearl Davis, H. Pearl Davis. She's on internet. She's she makes the rounds on a lot of shows. 
I've never been particularly interested in a lot of her content, but she kind of has, she's kind of taken this approach of like putting herself out there as a more traditional woman who challenges modern dating tropes. And listen, there's a lot wrong with modern dating tropes, but she put this tweet out there and it was interesting to acknowledge or analyze precisely because of what happened. So she said, yes, you're less attractive at 35 than 25 as a woman. This used to be common sense 50 years ago. Of course, the response to this was a lot of women posting pictures of themselves at 25 and 35 saying, no, I'm still pretty or no, I'm prettier now. And also making fun of Pearl's looks and stuff like that because she's kind of a plain looking girl. Um, not, not, uh, not, I guess, unattractive. I don't, I personally don't find her very attractive, but I have different tastes. Um, but like, but, but, you know, basically saying, oh no, we're still pretty. We're still pretty. And that really, I don't know, that, I, that really made me want to, that really made me want to watch this video that we talked about on the last show. And so we're going to watch it. We're going to talk about it. And then we're going to wrap because it's 4th of July and I got a barbecue to get to. Do you want to know one of the saddest realizations I recently had was that as a liberal woman, it is really hard to find a man who is willing to play the more traditional masculine role in the relationship in today's day and age. Who is not a conservative? A man who wants to pay on the first date, who wants to open your door, who has that want and desire to take care of you and to provide, who is not a conservative. And obviously as a liberal woman, I do want to be respected for my independence. And I do want to have my own autonomy in the relationship and not be confined or conformed to the traditional female homemaker, childbearing. So the man role. should be traditional, and but not the men that I've dated who do have that more natural provider masculinity about them are normally conservative. So I don't really know what to do because I don't want to compromise my morals and values just to find a man. But am I asking to have my cake and eat it too? Yes. Yes, you are. You're asking to have your cake and eat it too. You, you, you contradict yourself within that video. You say you want a man who is more traditional, but you don't want everything that comes with it. By the way, this is how, again, this is, this is how most people view the politics. Well, I'm liberal, so I want to be who I am. And you're conservative, which means you want to control me. I wrote, I wrote a long time ago, one of the first pieces, one of the early pieces of of beenawake.com was me talking about how the last thing I am is a libertarian. And what it is, is a commentary on how in our modern times, we tend to conflate our political identity with the core of who we are as a person. Now there's a reason, there are reasons for that. In some respects, a lot of modern politics is about your natural temperament, right? Politics used to be almost entirely geographical. That's where you would see, you would see conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, but we don't see that anymore because we have the internet. And so things have gone far, far, far farther along down the ideological realm which means there may be asymmetries in this sort of thing. Now, this was actually something I experienced numerous times in dating. I've experienced numerous times dating in a city like Chicago as I do. I am that guy. I hold open the door for women. Um, I, I make it a point to do it, especially if she's my date. Uh, I always pay. Um, I always pay on the first date, and I, I make an assumption that I'm paying unless you know the girl that I'm dating or seeing would like to would like to pay for something. It's just the way I walk into the room. Hell, I've had really bad dates, and I've still paid for those because that's what you're supposed to do. And I really do feel sad for a lot of the people, people like Pearl and people like Miss Petch or something. The uh, Miss Petch, yeah, the woman that we just saw in there, because 
you're becoming the you're becoming the thing you you should be trying to work against. We should all be striving to be better versions of ourselves and not using simple categories with which to separate people out in our personal lives. The ideological framework is meant for low resolution problems, right? Liberals and conservatives, these questions, black, white, all these things, these are meant for, these are meant for low resolution uh, conversations. This is meant for the mass of people. This isn't about how you're supposed to interact with people in your daily life. Now, of course, there, you can infer some things, i.e. a conservative guy probably doesn't want you to kill your baby, but that's because he wants to have a family with you, right? A liberal woman might not want to be relegated to the role of homemaker, but maybe that's because she just wants some respect unto herself and she thinks she's capable. And she probably is. See, this is the issue I find with all of these people is they basically, and, and how most people operate in this space, is they look for the side, they choose their side, and then they choose the arguments around their side. It could very well be that debate is lost. It could very well be that the culture is lost. It could very well be that dating is, is, is a pastime. But that hasn't been my experience. And so remember to always lead with love. Happy Independence Day, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow me on social media at the LB Muniz. If you like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.